Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of death, including infant death and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The summer of 2006 was coming to an end in St. Charles, Missouri. School was starting up again, and Megan Meyer was excited about a boy. His name was Josh. He was 16 years old, and he was very friendly. Megan was only 13, but the way Josh talked to her made her feel special, and his profile picture was so handsome. The picture was all Megan had to go on. Megan and Josh never met in person. They communicated on MySpace, a social networking website. Megan had struggled with depression and bullying for years, and MySpace seemed like a safe place for her to interact with her peers. Furthermore, Josh came across like a nice guy. The two teens chatted almost daily, and Megan's parents thought she was happier than she'd been in a long time. But that all changed on October 15th. That day, Josh messaged Megan with mean comments about her body and personality. They'd still never met in person, but Josh somehow knew which criticisms would hurt Megan the most. The next day, just minutes after a horrible text conversation with Josh, Megan took her own life. Her parents were devastated, but their pain turned to anger when they uncovered a terrifying fact. Josh didn't exist. Someone created a fake identity to hurt Megan on purpose. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. Here on Unexplained Mysteries, some enigmas are too big to solve in just two episodes. So occasionally, we're taking deep dives into the biggest questions people grapple with every day. Like, who really holds power around the globe? What secrets are hidden deep within the Earth? And are we alone in the universe? For the next several episodes, we're looking into the mysteries of cyberspace. In this series, we're asking, how do we create our digital identities and who controls our data? Today, we're exploring the ways humanity has adapted to life online. We use the internet for almost everything, but at what cost? From cyberbullying to secret surveillance, our digital lives have real-world consequences, and we may not recognize them until it's too late. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Internet is everywhere. It touches nearly everything we say and do. For many people, computers and smartphones are like a third hand. We put our personal details, vital records, and deepest secrets into these little machines. And they transmit all that data somewhere else. Do you really know where your information is going or who has access to it? You'd be surprised how much of your life can be revealed when third parties determine what websites you visit, what apps you use, and what you post on your social media. You are your data. And with the internet, it never stays in your phone or computer. Once it's out there, it's out of your control and it can be manipulated or even used against you. After Megan's MySpace interactions and death in 2006, her parents looked for answers. They wanted to know who Josh was and who else had been bullying their daughter online. Above all, they wanted to know how they could have protected her. The Myers learned Josh's fake profile was run by the mother of one of Megan's friends, a woman named Lori. Lori's daughter and Megan had known each other for years, But Megan had recently changed schools, and Lori was upset. She believed Megan was spreading rumors about her daughter. So they created a fake MySpace profile to investigate her suspicions. Combined with bullying in school, the Myers believed the online torment left Megan feeling like she had no escape. And while Lori's deception and messages were undeniably cruel, her actions were also a potential crime. The government charged Lori with computer fraud. She was convicted of breaking MySpace's terms of service for creating the fake profile. But the courts ultimately ruled she didn't break any specific law when she bullied Megan. At the time, online harassment wasn't illegal. Missouri eventually enacted laws against cyberbullying, but justice was fleeting for Megan. Today, MySpace has given way to Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. There are over 5.5 billion user accounts on these four social media platforms alone. Many of us use several of these services to communicate with friends, family, and followers. And we rely on digital platforms for far more than keeping in touch. We bank, shop, order food, store photos, and even keep diaries online. And so much of our information is stored in something called the cloud. Think about how much of your daily life relies on digital information. 
your social security number, credit card number, home address, phone number, and email address are all data. Then there's our metadata, or new information created by our data. Think of a simple cell phone call. It's your phone number connecting to another phone number, right? Except there's plenty of information that can be gleaned from just one call. How long it lasted, which cell towers connected the signal, even what type of phone you used. And with GPS-enabled devices, there's more data about where you were when you dialed, connected, or hung up. There are also patterns within this information. For example, the frequency at which you make calls from the same location might show where you live or work. If you call the same numbers often, that reveals who your closest friends or family are. All of this is metadata, and that's just for phone calls. Imagine how much is created by your internet surfing, online shopping habits, or driving directions. Just by living your life, you generate enormous amounts of information. Along with concrete details about you, like numbers and addresses, Metadata forms the core of your digital identity. And all that information bounces around the internet every day. Even when we're not online, our data is stored on websites and servers in distant locations, which makes it vulnerable. Unscrupulous individuals are constantly trying to scoop up our personal, private information. And many times, they succeed. In June 2015, hackers gained unauthorized access to computers at the U.S. government's Office of Personnel Management, the agency that maintains records on civilian government employees. They were able to retrieve the names, birth dates, home addresses, and social security numbers of over 21 million people. Four years later, in 2019, Facebook revealed that the private passwords of 600 million users were easily accessible to nearly 20,000 of their employees. In 2020, a data breach at MGM Hotels released the names, contact information, and birth dates of over 142 million former guests. But these incidents all paled in comparison to the compilation breach. In February 2021, a huge database of stolen emails and corresponding passwords was leaked to a popular hacker forum. The database was compiled from breaches at Netflix, LinkedIn, Bitcoin, and dozens of other services. The list featured a total of 3.2 billion accounts, or 70% of all internet users in the world. It was the largest identity theft in history. Now, some of this stolen information, names, addresses, emails, birth dates, may not seem important. You could look much of it up in a phone book. But without a photograph or a fingerprint, these personal details are often the only way to prove you are who you say you are online. If you forget a password, you typically need to answer personal questions to regain access. This basic data can be enough for third parties to duplicate your identity and access other, more sensitive information, like bank balances, medical records, and social security numbers. This form of identity theft is happening more and more frequently. 
Over 1.4 million Americans had their identity stolen in 2020, which is more than double the number from the year before and triple the year before that. In 2020 alone, identity thieves stole over $3.3 billion in other people's money. And they used more than just credit cards and personal information to hack bank accounts. Some stole houses. In August 2021, Mike Hall got a call from his neighbors. He lived in Luton, England, and worked remotely from Northern Wales. He'd been gone for weeks, but his neighbors said someone was in his home. The lights were on, and there was a lot of activity inside. The next day, Mike drove home, but his keys didn't work in the front door. He knocked and found a construction crew renovating his house. All of his possessions, furniture, carpets, books, clothes, were gone. A man later arrived claiming he was the legal owner of the house. He accused Mike of trespassing and called the police. When officials heard the story, they had a simple solution. Go online and check the deed registry for the house. Spoiler, Mike's name wasn't on the deed. His home had been legally sold on August 4th, but not by Mike. Somebody had stolen his identity with information found online. With a fake driver's license, the thieves opened a bank account, posted the house for sale, and closed the deal over the phone, all without Mike knowing. The police told Mike there was nothing they could do. Buying a house wasn't illegal. Even though the seller had committed a crime, the new owner had done nothing wrong. Mike's only option was to go after the identity thief. His case is now in civil court, where he's trying to reclaim his home and his digital identity. Mike's not alone. As our metadata grows, our digital identities are becoming more accurate reflections of ourselves. And there are many ways data can be used against us, even if they aren't always obvious. After all, most of us don't know where the information we put into cyberspace actually goes. The internet feels like an invisible force that doesn't actually exist, at least not physically. But it does. The internet is a network of real computers, and few know who actually controls those machines. In fact, danger may have been built in from the very beginning. Coming up, the consequences of our online past. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. 
This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Now back to the story. In 1957, the Soviet Union launched a tiny metal ball into orbit around the Earth. It was called Sputnik, and it was the first human satellite in history. Sputnik couldn't do much but transmit a beeping signal. But at the time, the signal beep was the most terrifying sound the U.S. military had ever heard. If the Soviet Union could fire a satellite into space, it meant they could also launch an attack from space. So, a year later, the U.S. Defense Department founded the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. Their mission was to prevent any more surprises during the Cold War and be first to launch new technologies. Today, DARPA is the home of jetpacks, battlefield hallucinations, and robot worms. But back in 1969, DARPA scientists were still trying to figure out how to send data between computers. They broke information down into small bits of computer code that could be transmitted easily. The recipient computer then reassembled the code into coherent information. This is still basically how the Internet works. Text and pictures are converted into data packets, which your computer puts back together when you visit a website. Today, this happens in less than the blink of an eye. But 50 years ago, it was much more difficult. In October 1969, DARPA scientists tried to transmit a single word from one computer in Los Angeles to another near San Francisco. Each was the size of a small house, and the one in L.A. crashed after sending just two letters. Still, DARPA had successfully created the first linked computer network. They called it ARPANET, and by the end of the year, they'd added two more computers. As the U.S. government's ARPANET grew, other scientists developed their own computer networks. In the late 1980s, a programmer in Switzerland created Hypertext Transfer Protocol, which is the HTTP and WWW label in most website links. Like a mailing address, these made it much easier for computers to find specific packets of data. A few years later, a group of university researchers in Illinois created the first Internet browser, a program for loading website data. The browser, which was named Mosaic, made the Internet look the way it does today a web address bar with home and back buttons. This interface made it easy to navigate through websites. With Mosaic, ordinary people could surf the Internet. And by the 1990s, 
many people had personal computers on their desks. The digital age had begun. But it actually began several times. Different groups of scientists, both military and civilian, developed integral parts of the computing systems we use every day. And while they worked on similar projects at the same time, they didn't exactly work together. No single entity was responsible for creating the Internet, and nobody was responsible for protecting it either. Each computer in the network had its own data and security measures. It was like multiple people doing a puzzle from different sides at different times. And technological developments happened so fast, even if one part of the puzzle wasn't perfect, they moved on to the next. With each decade, the growth of digital technology built a house of cards on top of a house of cards. Now, the Internet has transformed from house-sized computers struggling to text each other to smartphones and TikTok. Less than 70 years after Sputnik's beep startled the world, nearly 60% of humanity is online. The digital house of cards is bigger than ever. But just a few corporations control the entire deck. Today, just three companies, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft, manage more than half of the planet's data centers. And their share of the market is growing. By the end of 2020, their combined data capacity was double what it had been in 2015. But the big three aren't alone. Other global conglomerates, like Alibaba and Facebook, also hold huge pieces of the world's information pie. And it's far more literal than you might imagine. Our personal devices can't possibly hold all the data we interact with on a daily basis. When you type in a web address or upload a photo to the cloud, you're tapping into distant storage computers called servers. These are like giant hard drives that contain photos, videos, emails, and social media accounts. The big three companies each own and manage tens of thousands of them in giant complexes called hyperscale data centers. Most of the websites and email servers we use daily are in those centers, which means our data inevitably ends up in the hands of those companies. And even if you try to avoid them, they will find you. For example, many of us have used Google for driving directions or GPS-based maps. And Google gathers much of that data via satellites and camera cars. But nobody chooses when or where Google's satellite passes overhead, snapping photos of their neighborhood or house. Few of us even notice the Google camera car passing by for street-level shots of us out running errands or going for a walk. We certainly aren't asked if it's okay. And privacy violations aren't even the worst of it. You've probably heard of something called cookies. These aren't chocolate chip treats. They're tiny data packets that form some of the most detailed information about your online habits. And much like a buttery chocolate cookie, they can stick with you longer than you'd like. Websites use cookies to make data exchanges more efficient. You visit the site and it gives you a cookie. It's a little stamp of information that shows when you visited, what you clicked on, and how long you looked at it. 
The next time you view the site, the page knows what you've already seen because these cookies are stored on your computer. They make websites load faster, but critically, these cookies can also track you. And just like maps and metadata, putting all your cookies into one jar can reveal an incredible amount about you. This is how online advertisements seem to know you were just looking for a pair of boots or a new Xbox. Now, all the ads you see on other websites are for boots and Xboxes. Luckily, due to privacy concerns in the late 2000s, many websites now have to ask you if they can use cookies to nab your information. That's why you often have to click accept or allow when you first load a web page. And some sites won't let you use them fully if you don't accept. This gives you an illusion of choice, but it's just that, an illusion. If you want to access your favorite websites for fun or vital ones for work, you have to accept the cookies. And here's the real kicker. These cookies can track your habits across other websites to generate even more data. Just like the metadata from a phone call, cookies create patterns tied to your basic information, like your name, email, or address. Any information you put into a website, like your shoe size on Nike.com or your answers to a Facebook quiz, all get tied back to you. Put it all together and there's a complete digital snapshot of you. To make matters worse, this digital identity might outlive your physical one. Because even when you die, your data lives on. On February 18, 2011, teenage vlogger Esther Earle posted on her Twitter account. Her message was short and simple, but it shocked her family, friends, and other followers because Esther had died six months before. The message wasn't some computer glitch either. She used a program to schedule the post, and it created a painful reminder of her absence. Some people liked the idea of their digital presence lasting beyond their death, but the majority find it disconcerting. A study in 2018 showed only 7% of social media users wanted their profiles to remain active after they died. But honoring their wishes may not be as simple as shutting down an account. After all, most of us don't know our friends' social media passwords. This means their data is often inaccessible. The security measures that protected it in life lock it up in death. Many companies won't provide password information to unauthorized users under any circumstances. This is specifically to prevent identity theft, even if the living person connected to that identity is gone. Sometimes when survivors do have the passwords, companies will still lock them out of their loved one's data. In 2012, a German teenager died in a train accident, but she'd written down her digital passwords. By the time her parents logged into her Facebook account, it had already been reported as belonging to a deceased individual. The company turned her profile into a memorial page, which couldn't be accessed or deleted. Even with her password, the girl's parents couldn't access her former page. Facebook refused to let them in. It took them six years of court battles to get the account, all while mourning their daughter. 
Some estimates say within the next century, nearly 5 billion active Facebook users will die. The data they shared while alive could remain online forever, even if they wanted it to die with them. It seems the only way to avoid having your digital identity categorized and tracked is to avoid cyberspace altogether. But for better or worse, the computer systems that run the modern world, like banks, public entities, and retailers, often require us to be online. But while you can't opt out, you might be able to rig those systems to your benefit. Coming up, rogue computer experts wreak havoc in the digital realm. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in data science. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Now, back to the story. On the morning of June 1st, 1990, Los Angeles radio station KISS FM played KISS by Prince. Normally, this wouldn't be a big deal. But that particular morning, that song meant a huge prize for one lucky listener. The 102nd person to call after Prince's song would win a brand new Porsche. The winning caller was a man named Michael B. Peters, but the radio station didn't know they'd been duped. Every caller had been Michael B. Peters, and he didn't exist. As soon as Prince's song started playing, a 24-year-old named Kevin Polson hijacked the radio station's digital phone system. No other call got through except his. All he had to do was call 101 times, then use an alias, Michael B. Peters, to win the car. This wasn't the first time he'd done it. Polson had won thousands of dollars in other call-in prizes using the same computer scheme. Polson was a hacker. These computer wizards used their machines to find security gaps in data networks from email accounts to secret military servers. Sometimes they find weaknesses that need to be fixed. These types of hackers are called white hats. They're like freelance security experts or secret shoppers. They test computer systems and report what they find to the owners. But hackers like Kevin Polson are called black hats. Polson hadn't just used his computer to rip off a radio station. He'd also tapped the phone lines of movie stars and conspired to steal military documents. Polson had even hacked a secret line in the Soviet consulate in San Francisco. That big red telephone you see military leaders using in movies? The 24-year-old high school dropout could call it anytime he wanted to. But since Polson's heyday in the early 90s, 
Data systems have become more complex, secure, and integrated into our lives. And hackers have evolved their skills to keep up. This makes black hats today far more dangerous than ever before. On July 8, 2019, the computer system at Spring Hill Hospital in Mobile, Alabama, abruptly stopped working. It wasn't a glitch or a power outage. It was a hostage situation. The computers were being held ransom. Their hard drives had been locked by a virus controlled by hackers. In order to unlock the systems, the hospital had to pay an exorbitant amount of money in untraceable digital currency. But the hospital administrators refused. Instead, they shut down the computers and called in IT experts to help break through the hacker's virus program. Unfortunately, it would take weeks. In the meantime, the hospital had to function like it was back in a pre-digital era. Nurses and doctors couldn't access medical records or digital communications. Many high-tech machines that monitored patients' health were inoperable. In one of the maternity wards, a woman named Tirani Kidd was about to give birth. Normally, her baby's heartbeat was constantly tracked by a machine connected to the nurse's station. If anything was wrong with the baby, they'd know immediately. But during the hacker's attack, the machine was offline. When the fetal heart rate skyrocketed, none of the nurses noticed. Tirani's child was in trouble, and by the time she gave birth, the damage was irreparable. Her baby later died. If the computers had been working, this tragic outcome might have been avoided. And these horrors weren't limited to Spring Hill. The hacker group allegedly struck at least 235 other medical facilities worldwide. In Germany, one hospital had to reroute ambulances when their computer systems were locked up. At least one woman died when her ambulance had to drive 20 miles to another medical center. Hospitals weren't the only victims. Huge international companies like shipping giant Maersk and Russian energy conglomerate Rosneft were brought to a standstill when their networks were hacked with ransomware. Imagine you or a loved one were in a hospital that was digitally held hostage. Or consider whether your business would survive if all the computers were suddenly deactivated and you couldn't pay the hacker's price. Most of our modern world can't function without computers. And even our elections are vulnerable. In 2018, computer scientist J. Alex Halderman publicly held a mock election at MIT. He used a single electronic ballot machine programmed with two fake presidential candidates, George Washington and Benedict Arnold. Halderman only had three people vote in his election, and they all chose George Washington. However, when Halderman's ballot machine printed out the results, the computer reported Benedict Arnold as the winner with a vote of two to one. Halderman had hacked the ballot machine with a program that made sure Arnold won, no matter how many votes were cast for either candidate. And since the program produced a reasonable final tally, nobody would know the machine had been hacked. Essentially, Halderman had rigged his election without a trace. 
Then, before the U.S. election in November 2020, cybersecurity specialist Beatrice Atobatelli bought a voting machine on eBay. She opened it up and hacked the authentication system. This allowed her to access the computer's software. While she didn't find a way to rig the election, she said, quote, I'm worried about some sort of ransomware attack on these machines on election day, which would stop people from voting. In the U.S., where a significant amount of the population votes electronically, this is an alarming possibility. And as we've seen, ransomware can lock up a system for weeks, so any attack near an election day could have serious consequences. Luckily, both Halderman and Atobatelli are white hats. Their experiments are intended to prevent future attacks. And there is no evidence that a voting machine actually used in a U.S. election has ever been hacked. But it may only be a matter of time. Hackers develop new methods as quickly as our lives go digital. The cyber realm and the real world are increasingly intertwined. So much so, sometimes we can't even tell them apart. In April 2018, the news and pop culture website BuzzFeed posted a video of President Barack Obama giving an interview. He commented on the film Black Panther, used profane language, and derided President Donald Trump. The image was certainly Obama, and the voice was uncannily similar, but the speech was fake. The speaker was filmmaker Jordan Peele, and BuzzFeed used sophisticated editing software to superimpose Peele's moving mouth onto Obama's face. This made it look like Obama had said something he hadn't. The video was a fabrication, but the digital manipulation made it impossible to tell. This type of video is called a deepfake, and it has terrifying implications. While many people know what we see and hear online may not be real, we tend to believe video evidence. However, with deepfakes, even our bodies and faces can be manipulated. And this technology is already inspiring violence. On New Year's Eve 2018, a video emerged depicting Gabon's president, Andimba. This was critical because nobody had actually seen the president in months. His advisors continually had new excuses for why the president wasn't available. He'd been ill, then fatigued, and finally, they admitted he'd had a stroke. Some citizens took the New Year's video at face value, believing Andimba was fine. However, others in Gabon's opposition party claimed it was a deep fake, and Andimba was dead, which meant the government was playing them. The debate escalated for the next week, until finally it sparked an uprising on January 7th. Gunshots rang out in the streets, and rebel soldiers occupied the national radio station. The violence was quelled, but there was another issue. The video was real. Ondimbo was alive, and he really gave the speech. But the fact the video could have been a deepfake was enough to inspire a violent coup. We live in an era in which our physical identities can be duplicated by computer. Our digital identities are in the hands of just a few giant corporations. And all of these systems can be taken hostage by hackers. We don't know what the future holds. 
our online lives may become the only ones we have, or we might restrict technology to protect our humanity. There are endless options in cyberspace. So for the next eight episodes, we're going to explore the possibilities and pitfalls. After all, our information is our identity, and it's up to us to protect it. Because if we don't take control of our data, someone else will. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. Next time, we'll take a deep dive into the secret codes, hidden messages, and alternative realities of the digital realm. We'll explore how our data is manipulated for profit and for fun. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer and never share your digital passwords with anyone. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Cara Mackerline, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs>